0: Um, thank you all for coming out on a Friday night um, I um, always love coming to Skylight because, in a certain sense, my literary career began in this place. Because when I was a s- reporter for the LA Times in my 20s, and I started started to think about writing fiction, I would spend many hours in the stacks of this bookstore, what was called Chatterton's, if anybody remembers. Yes, and um, and now I am on my fourth book, and um, and it's good to come home. I used to live uh, a few blocks from here, and and haunt this place. And also, when it became Skylight Books and was resurrected and reborn. Um, So thank you so much uh, for the invitation from Skylight Books. Um, And I want to tell you a little bit about my most recent project, this crazy book, uh, Deep Down Dark, which I guarantee you if you begin it, uh, you won't be able to put it down because it's sort of been uh, that way for me as a writer to be sort of pulled into this story uh, and to, um, uh, you know, I I saw this on television, as I imagine many of you did, happen in 2010, and I was at that time working on my uh, most recent novel. I was finishing it up, and I got a call from my agent in New York, who, uh, several months after the rescue, and he said, Hector, would you be interested in writing the book uh, of the Chilean miners? And I said, well, do you have their rights? And he said, yes. And I said, well, how many? And he said, well, all 33. And um, what had happened was that these men, when they were still buried underground, they made a pact among themselves that they would all uh, share in the profits of any book. So when you buy this book, uh, part of the money, the royalties actually go to the miners and part go to me. We're in a uh, collaboration with uh, one another. and. Um, and they went out uh, and sought uh, a representation. They got some attorneys uh, to represent them in Chile, and those attorneys went uh, to uh, the William Morris Endeavor Agency in New York and Beverly Hills, and eventually they uh, came to me um, because they were looking for someone who could tell this story uh, almost like a novel. They were looking for a novelist who was also a journalist who uh, spoke Spanish and who knew South America. Now I had, you know, so that's that's about three people. Uh, it's actually maybe two because and one of them is on the back of the book who blurb me, Francisco Goldman. And uh, and so Frank uh, and I, um, well, I, I, I was approached. I actually am represented by William Morris Endeavor, so I was ahead of the game. And um, and so uh, I was given this really unique task, which I think makes this a unique read for you uh, w- when you get to it. Is that I was told to write about this event that everybody knows about, everybody saw. Uh, most people know a couple of things about this and one that they thing that they know is, and I used to, I've used i got asked this question for three years now, what about the guy with the two wives on the surface, right? That's one of the stories. And um, and then everybody knows that they came out. Uh, by now, a lot of people have sort of forgotten that they all got out, but it, everyone knows it has a happy ending. And so I was given the task of taking the story and creating a work of art from it. Um, I was told, Hector, have at it. Um, you know, uh, And for three years, my editors at FSG did not bug me at all. Uh, yeah about the book. They let me, they let me uh, lose myself in the story. And so I conducted hundreds of hours of interviews. And one of the first things I did, of course, was I had to travel to South America. And I I met these men briefly, and I went to this city called Copiapo, which is where most of the miners lived. Many other miners commuted like I am doing now, I'm commuting between LA and Eugene. They commuted a a similar distance in Chilean terms from the far south of the country to the far north to work at this place. Many lived in this town, Copiapó, which is located in the Atacama Desert, uh, which is famous as the driest desert on earth and um, it's a place where there are weather stations that have never collected a single drop of rain in the hundred years of existence and there are, uh, in Copiapó typically it, it, it does rain a little bit every year although there's not really a serious rainstorm uh, for like a decade or so every 12 or 13 or 14 years there, there's a serious rainstorm in Copiapó so it's a very dry place it's treeless well except for in the city of Copiapó there's pepper trees um, and you go out and it's this moonscape and The men were working in this mine that was a copper and gold mine. And it had this vein of ore that went at a 60-degree angle. And they had systematically dug this ramp to get to the ore. So the main mountain, the mountain was made out of this granite that was really, really hard. And they carved this road into the granite, thinking it could never, ever collapse. And from that road, they would build out side passages to this um, cavern where, excuse me, this is the vein of ore. Now, after more than 120 years of mining this, they left a big empty space inside the mountain. And they, of course, were weakening it. And so, this is gradually what is going to cause the collapse, although the men don't know it. And I'm going to read to you a passage from the very beginning that describes what the mountain was like um, and and what was happening in the days uh, before uh, the accident. The San Jose mine, founded in 1889, rests on top of mineral deposits that take the form of two parallel strips of softer rock embedded at a 60 degree angle inside a much harder gray-granite-like stone called diorite. An old wooden building on the mountainside marks the spot where the ore reached closest to the surface. The building once housed a working winch that lifted men and minerals out of the mine, but it hasn't been used in decades, and today it looks like a relic from an old Western. 121 years after the San Jose mine opened and 2,000 feet below that old building, the night shift is finishing its work during the early morning hours. Men covered in gray soot and drenched in sweat, begin to gather in one of the caverns below, at a spot that is like an underground bus stop, waiting for the truck that will take them on the 40-minute drive to the surface. During their 12-hour shift, these men have noted a kind of wailing rumble in the distance. Many tons of rock are falling in the forgotten caverns deep inside the mountain. The sounds and vibrations caused by these avalanches are transmitted through the stone structure of the mountain in the same way the blast waves of lightning strikes travel through the air and ground. The mine is weeping a lot, the men say to each other. La mina está llorando mucho. This thundering wail is not unusual, but its frequency is. To the men in the mine, it's as if they're listening to a distant storm gathering in intensity. Thankfully, their shift is about to end. A few will tell the next group to enter the mine, the men of the day a shift. La mina está llorando mucho. But it is unlikely that San Jose will close as a result. The men who work there have heard these gathering storms before. The thunder always recedes and eventually the mountain returns to its steady and quiet state." So that's the situation as the men enter the mine on that morning. And so this Mine is this highway, essentially, that goes into the mountain, and it's at a a 10% grade, uh, and it spirals down. First, it's a switchback, and then it's a spiral, and it goes down 2,100 feet. Now, if it wasn't for the Hajj Burka in, you know, in Dubai, this mine would be deeper than the tallest building on earth is tall. But because they built the Hajj Burka just before the mine it collapsed, it's almost as t- deep as the tallest building is tall. So it's 2,100 feet. You know We have the tallest building in LA, uh, the uh, you know US Bank building. It's basically twice as deep as that building is tall. So imagine two of the tallest buildings in LA stacked on top of each other, that's how deep. Uh, the Mine was, and so they go in every day, and they work from nine a.m. until no, excuse me, from eight a.m. until eight p.m. And um, they go in, and and the mine, as they went deeper and deeper in, it got hotter. Um, Now this is explained to me that it's the geothermal heat of the earth, so it was really kind of like hell, because you know we have this image of hell as this hot place. Well, the deeper they went in, the hotter it got, and also the mine was really a. A a small mine that was really poorly ventilated so the temperature would sometimes reach uh, uh, more than 100 degrees uh, or 90% humidity so the men would really sweat a lot there Um, and many of them did not eat breakfast in the mornings because they said that they knew that if they ate a big breakfast they would probably throw it up after a couple of hours underground so they would skip Um, breakfast, and then the lunch truck would come down at about one o'clock. It was supposed to come, twelve o'clock, and it would take them from the refuge back up to the surface. They had a little cafeteria. Many of them had uh, their food waiting for them, or they would heat them up in microwaves. One particular truck driver uh, who was in charge of picking up ore, he got to the surface, and he had unloaded his ore. It was about 12.30, and he decides uh, to go to the lunchroom. He's going to have his lunch, and uh, he thinks, You know, and he gets, he puts the soup his wife made him in the microwave, he starts to heat it up and he thinks, no, I'll just eat this in the truck down below, and that way I'll get in an extra load for the day. And he got paid a bonus by the load, so for that extra load, he was going to make nine dollars. So he decides to go back down into the mine, and for that nine dollars, he almost lost his life. And so they all are, uh, you know, he drives back down to the bottom of the mine to have his truck loaded with ore. All the men are working inside the mine. Some of them are waiting in a little room called the refuge that is um, basically at level 90, which is 500 meters or 1,500 feet from the surface. And it's a room that's supposed to be for emergencies, but really there's no one expects an emergency, so it's like a waiting room. There's air that's pumped in from the surface, so it's a bit cooler in there so they're waiting one guy has this really crazy habit that he sweated so much every day that just before the lunch break he would take off all his clothes strip down to his underwear and and hang up his clothes in front of the vent and let his clothes dry out that way so he's sitting there uh, in his underwear waiting for the lunch truck to come and so the lunch truck begins to drive down, and it's being driven by these two older men. One is Franklin Lobos, who was a retired soccer player down on his luck. He had been really famous in Copiapó. He had been a, you know, a, one of the best players in the local team. His career was over. his wife had left him because he was a womanizer, he had a daughter who was in college, he didn't earn enough as a taxi driver to pay for her to go to college, so he was working in this mine. And this mine was such a lousy place to work that the headlamps of the truck didn't work, so he had to drive with the fog lamps. So he's driving down with this other older guy, Jorge Gallegillos, who looks like a mountain man, has a big long white beard, he's in his 50s, and Jorge Gallegillos is the big complainer in the mine. He's telling everybody that the mine is going to collapse but no one listens to him so the older miner jorge gallagios is riding in the cab alongside lobos going down to check on the system of tanks and hoses that brings water from the surface down into the mine the drive is slow and tedious following the ground hugging beam of the truck's fog lamps along a single great tunnel sinuous and repetitive, as if they were entering the dark, dank, and vacant landscape of a miner's subconscious. A half hour longer they drive, one rocky turn following another in passageways with a million ragged, serrated edges blasted from the rock. They are at about level 190 when they see a white streak move past the truck's windshield from right to left. Did you see that, Gaigio says? That was a butterfly. What? A butterfly? No it wasn't, Lobos answers. It was a white rock. The mind's ore rich veins are thick with a translucent milky quartz that glimmers when it catches the light. It was a butterfly, Gallegios insists. Lobos believes that it's pretty much impossible to think that a butterfly could flutter down in the dark to more than 1,000 feet below the surface. But for the moment, he surrenders the argument. You know what? You win. It was a butterfly. Lobos and gallegillos continue driving about 20 more meters and then they hear a massive explosion and the passageway around them begins to fill with dust. The ramp is collapsing directly beneath them near the spot where a rock or a butterfly passed before their windshield. The sound and the blast wave interrupt 34 men laboring inside stone corridors, men using hydraulic machines to lift stone, men listening to stone crash against the metallic beds of dump trucks, men waiting in the lunch room, uh, waiting for the lunch truck in a room carved from stone, men drilling into stone, men driving diesel-fed machines down a stone highway, and men wearing eroded stone on their clothes and their faces. The truck driver, Ulvegas, who's driving uphill, is the only one of the 34 men underground at the moment of the collapse who manages to escape. He watches in horror as a dust cloud gathers in his rearview mirror and quickly overtakes his truck. He speeds through the cloud toward the exit, and when he reaches the mouth at which the ramp opens to the surface, the dust follows him outside. A gritty brown cloud will continue flowing out of that malformed orifice for hours to come. Inside the personnel truck at level 190, Lobos and Gallagillos are the two men closest to the collapse, which hits them as a roar of sound, as if a massive skyscraper were crashing down behind them, Lobos says. The metaphor is more than apt. The vast and haphazard architecture of the mine, improvised over the course of a century of entrepreneurial ambition, is finally giving way. A single block of diorite as tall as a 45-story building has broken off from the rest of the mountain and is falling through the layers of the mine, knocking out entire sections of the ramp and causing a chain reaction as the mountain above it collapses too. Granite-like stone and ore are knocked loose, pulled down downward to crash against other rocks, causing the surviving sections of the mine to shake as if in an earthquake. The dust, created and propelled by the explosions, shoots sideways, upward and downward, ejected from one passageway and gallery in the mine's maze of corridors to the next. So. This is really a horrific event for the men who lived through it. And in fact, many of them, who you may hear, are still suffering from traumas. This, the most important trauma, the, the most difficult trauma they suffered was those first few minutes, that first hour, because the collapse continued. Um, later um, uh, some of them describe that they're trying to run away up the ramp and they can see the ramp um, undulating. I don't know if any of you have ever seen uh, f- footage of an earthquake, uh, you know, sometimes the ground undulates. Well, they. See see these seemingly solid stone walls undulating you know, before them. So it's a terrifying thing. They wait for the dust to settle, the sounds to stop crashing, and then they drive up the ramp. But then the ramp is filled up with stones, and they have to walk, and they, keep, they walk up the ramp, and about level 190, still, many, uh, ma- still very far from the surface, they see a, a brand new gray wall across the surface of the ramp. And the mine was really dirty, right? Because, you know, trucks are driving through it. The stone walls are dirty. But this one was brand new because it had just been cut from the mountain. And many of the men, it was fr- they had never seen anything like this. And some, some of them said it was as if God had created it to, to trap us. One person said it was like the stone that you, that you imagine was before Jesus' tomb. And another person said it was a guillotine of stone. So when they see this, they realize they're screwed. Uh, many of them say, Kagamos, which literally means we're we're shit, but uh, it really what the translation I give is that we're screwed or we're fucked, you know. And they begin to realize, you know, that they're going. Many they may die, and for the older men, you know, they think there's no way we would be rescued. We're too far down. Um, there's no way out. Um, and they they begin to have reflect on their lives. And so a lot of what I, the interview I did was talking to these men about their family lives, and um, and so. They begin to pray every day. Mario Sepulveda, he becomes the most famous of the miners. He's the guy who's seen in this World Cup ad. He's known later as Super Mario. He starts yelling, he says, God damn it, I want to pray. And they begin to pray every day. And so they have these prayers, and they're led by this crazy evangelical uh, who ordinarily is the kind of guy who rubs everybody the wrong way. But suddenly when they're facing death, someone who knows stories about the Bible is suddenly necessary, right? And so I'm going to read to you a little bit about what the pastor, Jose Enriquez, would say. Um, Oh, and then also, they have a little bit of supply of food, um, enough for 24 men to live for two days. Unfortunately, there are 33 men, and they may be trapped several days. And the very first night, one of the miners the number two in command tells Yoni Barrios, who's famous later as the guy with the two wives, who's kind of a weak person, tells him, look, Yoni, I want you to go down there and don't let anybody eat that food, okay? Uh, We're gonna look for a way out, but you tell everybody we need to save that food. And so Yoni goes back down, most of the men are there. They're hungry, they haven't eaten, right? They haven't eaten. And they've skipped, they, they skip breakfast, they didn't get lunch. It's 6, 7 p.m., they're hungry, and there's a bunch of cookies and tuna in that, can, in that box. So they say, we want to eat. The other men say, no, we can't. Yoni says, no, we have to save this food. And they push him out of the way. And one of them takes a, um, a, a, a bolt cutter, because in the mine they use bolt cutters to uh, cut these long metal rods, and says, I'm going to cut it open. And there's this confrontation, and finally the man with the key appears and says, look, don't cut the bolt. Here, I'll open it. And they open it up. And half, like, no, three or four of the men eat many, many packages of cookies. And so they lose a big source of their food supply. This is a secret that the men kept uh, from everyone and has not come out until the book came out. And, um, and so they have less food. So when they finally come together, they say, look, we can only have a cookie a day. So they have essentially one cookie a day, it's like like an Oreo, a wafer cookie, they're actually kids cookies that in Chile are called cartoons, they have drawings of dogs on them and stuff, and they have a cream filling, and they're gonna have one of those a day, and they're also going to have a cup of water, and they have um, industrial water with them that is tainted with motor oil, but that's their chief source of water, and in each uh, glass of water they mix a spoonful of tuna, because they have a few cans of tuna. And so when they eat, Before they eat, they gather to pray. Just before the meal, the tall, balding Jose Enriquez begins the session with a prayer and then a few words that serve as a kind of sermon. Sometimes he tells Bible parables from memory. There is, most appropriately, the story of Jonah who was swallowed by a whale. Jonah was sent on a mission by God to speak in a certain village, but instead Jonah got on a ship and went in the opposite direction. Quote, Jonah was a guy with a bad temper, Enrique says, so God put the squeeze on him. The Lord sent a powerful storm to toss the ship about, and when Jonah's shipmates realized he was the source of God's wrath, They tossed him overboard, where he was swallowed by a great whale. Disobedience is never good, Enrique says. Jonah was in the belly of hell and in the depths, Enrique says, speaking a word that he remembers from a Bible passage. Profundidad. Is the word in Spanish, and hearing it spoken by a man of God inside the depths of the mind leaves a powerful impression on the mind of the diary writer, Victor Segovia, who started to keep a diary, who will scribble the word down a few hours later. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, the Bible passage reads. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Jonah submits himself to the Lord. He says that God has brought him up from a life of corruption and promises that he will sacrifice unto God with the voice of thanksgiving. The Lord then commands the whale to spit Jonah out. Here, in this horrific place, trapped inside stone walls, the message is more powerful than it will be when spoken in any church. It's as if they are living inside a Bible parable, Yoni Barrios thinks. They have survived two weeks without a true meal, with no certain prospects that they'll, that they'll ever eat again, and everything that's happening to them seems to have some deeper message. Victor Segovia never went to church much, but now he's sort of going to church every day, because with each prayer session, the scene the sense grows that the union of those thirty-three men is a holy event. Before this accident befell him, Victor writes in his diary, he thought of church as a place where sinners went to seek forgiveness. But Enriquez now speaks to him of a message of hope and love. The pastor, as he's now being called, is by now a man physically transformed too. He's taken off his shirt against the relentless heat and humidity. He's cut off his pants to shorts. And he walks around in rip up, ripped up boots that look like sandals. Speaking of God with his bare chest and its patches of hair covered in sweat, and with his bald pate and its matted fringe of hair, Enriquez is beginning to look like a crazed mystic who lives in some desert cave, an effect heightened by the fact that when he speaks, he seems utterly convinced of what he is saying. Christ loves you in spirit, the pastor says, and Victor later records the the pastor's words in his diary. Look for him, and you will see that he loves you, and you will find peace. For Victor, this is a revelation. I see now that people who are thankful go to church too, and that the people who go there have been touched by the grace of God, he writes. In another sermon, Enricus tells the story of Jesus taking five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplying them to feed 5,000 people. He then leads them in a prayer that the Lord will find a way to take their small supply of food and make it last longer, because very soon they're going to run out master would pray that the food be multiplied, Mario Sepulveda later says. Afterward, I'd see one of los niños walk over to the cabinet and try to peek inside to see if there really might be more food in there. Instead, each op- opening of the cabinet reveals less food. The men begin to scavenge around to see what they might, f- might find to eat. Yoni Barrios, the man who failed to protect the food against the hungry men on the day of the collapse, sees one pick up a discarded can of tuna and take his finger to it, wiping the inside and licking his finger again and again. Yoni never thought he'd see a well-paid man like him reduced to such a state. Other men begin to go through the trash cans and when they find orange peels, they clean them well and eat them. Yoni himself devours the brownish remains of a pear. That was good to eat. The hunger was terrible. Victor has also eaten half-chewed fruit he found in the trash, and on Wednesday, August 11th, six days after the accident, he writes about it in his diary, remembering how he used to see the poorest of the poor in Kopiapo sifting through the garbage. We ignore it. People think that it will never happen to them, and look at now, look at me eating peels, trash, anything that is edible. Carlos Mamani, the Bolivian immigrant, scans the ground to see if there are any bugs or worms crawling around. He would grab one if he saw it and eat it. But just as there are no butterflies in the mine, there are no beetles or caterpillars either. I didn't see a spider or even a termite. Nothing. So that's where the men are um, after several days. And they reach the 17th day and they are still uh, very hungry. They begin to have these crazy dreams. Uh, Several of the men told me independently, because I interviewed... Almost all of them individually, uh, some of them in groups, some in their homes with their wives present. But very often they told me stories that, of having these crazy dreams, um, like the 15th or 16th day. Because after like the 12th day, they, they decided they, they didn't have enough cookies to last that long, so they would have to have cookies every other day. So they were eating one meal every two days. And at the very end, they said, we only really have enough food. We should probably skip another day. And so they went three days without eating. And um, So they're very hungry, and they sleep a lot. And when they sleep, they have these really vivid dreams. Um, And I found out later... It seemed to me I thought people are going to think that I'm making this up, you know, or that I'm being over dramatic and I looked it up hunger starvation dreams and people who who fast on purpose for more than 7 or 8 days they tend to start having these they say these lucid dreams, these very long lucid dreams. And people who do that who fast on purpose say that it's part of the cleansing process of the brain, you know. And so uh, one of the men, for example, dreams that his daughter is operating the drills that are coming to look for them. Because after the third or fourth day, they hear these drills. So imagine being in a room, and you hear these drills coming towards you, but sometimes they miss you, and you can tell they missed, because you're in this little room, and they keep on coming, and you're praying that this one finds you. And so this man is um, Raul Bustos, who had survived a tsunami, is sleeping, th- is, is asleep, and he dreams that his daughter, his Five year old daughter is operating the drill because she's in kindergarten and she always gets the best grades and she never loses a race. And so he's telling her, you always win, you always win, you always get A's, you can find me, you can find me in his dream. In another dream, uh, uh, there's this Bolivian immigrant who's there, and uh, the Bolivians are, are, are the you know the underclass of, of Chile. They do some of the nastiest jobs, and he's come to Chile for a better life. And he has these dreams that he's going to visit all of his siblings. He's from a Bolivian village. He's got. Uh, he's got all these siblings, and in his dream, he's visiting each of his adult siblings independently. And he told me that in Bolivia, there's this belief that if, when you're dying, your soul wanders at night. And so he has these dreams that he's visiting all of his siblings. But he has one older sister who helped raise them when they were all orphaned. And he said that he knew that he would never saw her in his dreams. But he thought, if I see her, it means that I'm about to die. So he's having these dreams in which he's walking in the Altiplano of Bolivia to his village. Finally, Mario Sepulveda has this dream. Uh, he's the, the guy who's uh, he he's leading them. He's uniting them, but he's also fighting with people because he's not taking his medication. Because he's actually he takes lithium to control his mood shifts, and he's been trapped for 17 days. And he didn't bring his medicine down with him when he went to work. So he is at some times incredibly inspirational. And other times he's like, I want to, you know, I'm gonna let's let's go, let's go fight, you know. And so he's he's going through these mood shifts. And he uh, goes to sleep, and he dreams that he sees his grandparents, who had died many years ago. Now, he, like many of these minors, had a really, really rough childhood, a rough upbringing. His mother died in childbirth. He was later beaten by his father, who was an alcoholic. And he was raised by his grandparents. And in his dream, he sees his grandparents... And they bring him food in a basket and it's this corn and beans and meat and they bring it to him and he said, Uh, Señor, that was the most beautiful thing that happened to me underground was that time I spent with my viejos. I spent this time with my grandparents who had been dead. And I I know many of us who've lost someone. We've seen them after they've died. They've returned to us in dreams. And so he had this experience and it was beautiful and liberating. And his grandfather stood over him because in his dream he's lying down and he says, get up. You're not going to die here. Vos no vas a morir aquí. And as Mario tells it, Not long afterward, he woke up and heard this tremendous explosion, and the men see this drill break through. And it comes with water and noise and explosion, and they rush towards it. They've already sort of talked about what they're going to do. And in their half weakened state, they start to hit this thing because they want to send a sound to the surface. And then the pastor appears. Many of the men fall to their knees, you know, and just thank God. And the pastor says, God exists. He's been praying for this moment. And um, and so, uh, a little while later, uh, a phone line comes down, and they get on the phone, and they're with the Minister of Mining. <laughs> and they hear uh, all these people on the surface. And it's the beginning of another very strange chapter of the story, because then, for the next 52 days, the men are trapped and... They still can't get out. The mountain is still rumbling. They're going to drill this other bigger hole to get them out because the hole that they first reached them is six inches in diameter, and they're gonna drill one that's 22 inches so they can get them out in this capsule. But they're gonna have to wait maybe even until Christmas. And of course, um, they're hungry. They want food. Instead, they get glucose capsules. Uh, and they uh, they dream of getting a beer or wine they get instead you know water and very small portions because if you feed somebody who's been starving too quickly you are in danger of, of actually killing them uh, and so they were fed very slowly and then they start getting newspapers and they lower down a fiber optic line and they watch television and I asked how did you how could they watch television? I asked one of the rescuers you know he said, uh, uh, he said Mr. Tobar in those days we could ask for anything, and the world would give it to us. And it, Samsung told us that they had a little TV projector that was about this big, uh, about as big as a uh, uh, you know a, a woman's wallet, for example, or you know a large wallet. And they lowered it down, and this was a projector. And so it would they, we we gave them a sheet, and so they would they would project the television onto the sheet. So they watched morning television, for example, the morning news show, and. Uh, one of the morning sh- news shows from Santiago said, "And now we like to announce that the the you know the government of the Dominican Republic has said that it was going to send all 33 miners when they're rescued, you know, on a free vacation, which of course never took place. And so the men <laughs> are 2,000 feet underground, and they're saying we're going to the beach." <laughs> And this very quickly began to cause many um, divisions among the men. Uh, they had been united. They're men of many different faiths. Mario is a Jehovah Witness, uh, and José Enriquez is an Evangelical Christian. Many of the other, most of the other men are Roman Catholics. It didn't matter. They were all gathered to pray. Some were agnostics. They all gathered to pray. But then after the contact came through, many of the differences among them of religion uh, became to become more apparent. For example, the Pope sent 33 rosaries and the Catholics are you know oh my god what can be better than a, a rosary blessed by the Pope and the evangelicals are like I don't want to see that thing, you know, and uh, and and then you know the men begin to pray and they ask their, their relatives, the Catholics, to send them you know iconic like saint figures, and the evangelicals that's just too much, you know, you know that we don't believe in that, we don't really believe, and so like, you're insulting my religion, and so they get in these fights about religion. Um, many of them believe they're going to be rich because this Chilean entrepreneur shows up and says he's going to give them all the equivalent of ten thousand dollars a year's salary, and he wants all of Chile to raise a million dollars for them, and which never happens. But he, they do get the $10,000. And so the money comes, and on the surface, it's like, well, many of these men have more than one family. Not just that they have a mistress. Many of them have children from previous marriages. And so the children from the first marriage are there with the children of the second marriage. And it's like, oh, and when, when the guy is almost dead, everybody is like, oh, my God, we're praying together. But then suddenly when you think he might be a millionaire, then it's like, well, wait a second. You know, what about us? He, he cared for me before he cared for you. And he's been ignoring us for 20 years. And, you know, and so a lot of this stuff plays out. And one, one last crazy story I'll tell you before I wrap this up is that uh, and then, you know, some of the men are kind of jealous already. And so for example, this one woman tells me that uh, and all these celebrities are coming. So she's on the surface and this group of a sort of Chilean, Norteño kind of Mexican ranchera group shows up and they all have their big Stetsons and they've got their matching black outfits and they have a picture taken with this woman who's the wife of one of the miners. And she innocently sends the picture down to him. And he looks at this and he gets extremely angry and he writes back, Tears up, he tears up the picture it sends it back, the pieces back up to her, up, up the shaft and says, why are you sending this to me? I don't want to see you with any huevones. you know, which is an insult uh, in term of endearment and Chile. I don't want to, what you, you know, and she says to me, you know, he was always kind of jealous but being trapped down there, he was even more jealous. <laughs> so eventually they come out and, you know, my book actually follows them all the way up to um, two or three years after the accident when there's this whole other chapter of how do you live with fame when you're not really rich and you do have to go back to work and you're with this trauma. And in the end, the book is about going home, just like the Odyssey was. You know, I wanted to call it at one point the Stone Odyssey because it was all these strange things that happened inside the stone. Uh, there's uh, Mario at one point claims to have seen the devil. Uh, down at the very bottom of the mine Uh, and he tells the story that is uh, you can really believe that he believed he saw the devil Uh, and he fought with the devil he threw threw stones at it and you know he just went kind of crazy and believed he saw the devil Uh, and there's also already a myth in Chile that the devil lives in gold mines. And so there's all this spiritual stuff that happened underground, but in the end what did they want? You know, when they were trapped, they thought about family and they wanted to go home. So in the end, it's a book about wanting to go home and how how you have to fight to reach home, and how family and work can heal you. And, um, and that's what I learned doing this story. And it's been my project for the last three years. And I think that uh, if you begin to read this, I, I, I think you won't put it down. And I want you to tell all your friends about it uh, when you get to the end. So, with that, thank you very much, and I'll take your questions. Any- wow, was that amazing or what? <laughs> Yes. Question. Yes. Uh, well, I'm, I'm here with an actual Chilean. Okay. And uh, she tells me that, apparently Chilean Spanish it has a lot of its own distinctive phrases and idioms. And even though you speak Spanish, how difficult uh, was it for you to, to get through that? Um. It was, it was a little bit difficult at first. Um, I, for example, uh, I speak fluent Spanish, but my Spanish is Central American and I also lived in Buenos Aires, so I know Argentine Spanish. But there are certain, for example, I told many people when I first sat down to talk to them, I said, quiero, solo quiero sentarme aquí a, a platicar con ustedes. Now, platicar means to converse informally in Mexico, but in Chile, after like the second or third time I said that, somebody told me, uh, you know, we don't say, one of the attorneys I was working with told me, it was like my guide, she said, we don't really say, people don't understand you when you say that. So I, I had to learn not to say that. Another word that I learned really, really quickly is that there, in, in, in Latin America, there are many, regional slang words for work. So in Mexico, for example, it's la chamba. Your job is la chamba. In Buenos Aires, uh, it's laburo, You know, el laburo. In Chile, la pega, la pega, which means, pega means to hit something or stick. It means either hit or stick. And so people said, you know, es mi pega. And I would say to them, mi pega es escribir sobre ustedes. You know, and so I learned that word. And I had to learn many mining terms. And then, for, and then I also had to learn the meaning of the word polola, which is girlfriend. Because many of them had pololas, and it's a verb also. Estamos pololeando, which means we are girlfriend, we are in a relationship kind of a thing. And then finally the word that, was the, that came up the most often, often was huevón. Which, as I describe in the book, it's a slang word that is derived from the, uh, it's, a, it's a term of endearment and an insult. Because you can say "wovon" to your best friend when you hug him, and it's also you can say it to somebody you're angry with. uh, It's derived from the word for testicle, right? From "huevos." a slang word for testicles. And so, Yvonne was the word that came up the most and many other, uh, you know, many other expressions. And, yeah, after a while, I started, had, I started to have fun with it, you know, and learning mind technology, there's a whole sort of set of slang for minds. Uh, and it was, it was just really fun to lose myself in that w- world. And it did cause a few problems at first, but, you know, sometimes people would be talking to me and I'd be like going, uh-huh, 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 and I'd have to look later at the transcript and sort of make sense of what they were saying. But But I did figure it out. That's a good question. Thanks. Yes. Another question? Yes. Uh, sorry if you mentioned it. What was their light source? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, they went in there with lamps, right? So, and these lamps were charged with battery packs. So, you, when you go in to report for work, there's a whole bunch of battery packs that are in this charging station. You pick up a, a battery pack, and you connect it to your lamp, and that's your source of light. So, they began to run out. Yeah, and so, one scene in the book, they're gathering for the prayers, and Yoni Barrios told me that every time we prayed, there was less light. And that was pretty scary. I mean, you, think, you know, every prayer is taking you deeper into the darkness. Until finally, one of the guys who worked down there, Juan Yannis, he was a mechanic electrician. He figured out that he could recharge these batteries because they were trapped with 19 vehicles. Big jumbos that are like these kind of like, you know, they're like bulldozers that kind of fit into a narrow space. Pickup trucks. And so they would take the alternator, they would start up the cars, which all had gasoline, the vehicles, and they would start them up, and they would uh, use the alternator to charge up the batteries. And so they, he said it didn't work that well, but they did manage to charge them up. And so at one point, too, Juan Iannis takes the battery from one of the cars, he, he takes the um, headlamp, and he disassembles it, and he gets the, um, you know, the filament, and he connects it to this battery, and he makes a light. For the, where the area where they are, and so until the you know 18th, 19th day when finally uh, the Chilean government you know sent down water, they also uh, they also carved out another uh, another hole, another six-inch hole, and that hole became like the utility. Hole, and so that's they put in electricity. They put in uh, an air. I think I don't know. I think they also pumped in air. They also pumped in air to sort of lower the temperature a little bit, and um, and so then from then on they did have electricity. They also had you know television and fiber optic you know cable. Um, but for those first seventeen days, there were a lot of things like that where they improvised with what they had. Um, at one point, they also had a picnic. Someone said, "Look, we're running out of food, but I heard that if the food is heated up." Uh, it has more calories, right? I don't know if that's true, but somebody said that. And so, well, how do we heat up the food? You know, we're stuck down here. What? How do we make a? You know, and so they they take um, they take uh, uh, one of the filters, air filters, from one of the trucks. They turn it upside down. They make that into a pot. And then they start one of the cars and they put the pot with this. You know oily motor oil, water mixed with tuna, and they also had a can of peas, and they mix it up, and they heat it with, they start the vehicle, and they heat it with the exhaust from the vehicle. And it's a beautiful, it's not really beautiful, but it's there's a video of this, because one of the men took his phone into the mine, just left it in his pocket, forgot about it. And someone told him, hey, there's a video camera on that, and so they shot video of this. And in the video, you can see this little tiny thing of light. And all the men are, sort of, many of the men are gathered around it, and Mario is serving with some can, he's serving these cups of, in, you know, of, of tuna. And he's like making these, telling him hey, you know, come on, come have more. There's more, you know, there's lots, of, there's lots here. We're going to survive, it's going to be okay, you know. And then he starts talking to his son. So they were really very, um, they improvised many things to survive, yeah. Another question? Yes. Do they stay in touch? They are in touch through necessity. Um, there are... Uh, a lot of um, still misunderstandings, not misunderstandings, uh, divisions, uh, resentments, um, differences of personality. One of the first things that I was told when I started doing these interviews by some of, some of the older minors, one particular group of miners was, uh, we want you to know that Luis Ursúa, who everyone is saying was the leader, he wasn't the leader. You've got to put that down. You have, that has to be in your book. He was not the leader. And so many of them wanted me to know that. Others want, wanted me to know, Mario Sepulveda, he was the one who kept us together. You know, I'll be thankful for him for the whole, my whole life. Others would tell me that Mario was a lunatic. You know, we thought he was going to kill us. You know, some of some of them. Some people slept with like after after the contact when they started fighting with each other. Some people would sleep with a with a bar or something by their pillow because they thought there was going to get into a fight. You know, and so when they came out, however, um, they were all united. Um, this unity lasted for a while. Now there's like some divisions, but they are united in the sense that no one else besides them knows what they've been through. It's sort of like. Well, okay. Yeah, and they they have um, they they know the basic outlines of the book. They were called by the New Yorker fact checker, uh, to and so they know uh, they have approved of the book. Yes, okay. they had to sign off on it. So yes, they have. Okay. Yes. So then no, they, they, their contract with each other their con was that they wouldn't do that for, I don't know, a certain amount of time. So they have not published their own accounts. Yeah, my, mine is the only authorized one. Yes, Pablo? Um, I just saw a BBC show about the original Potosi mine, I believe, in Bolivia, uh-huh. which is of similar age. And it's also capsizing on itself for because of 500 years of Right. Uh, that, is that like a common problem throughout South America? Is, is any of these companies, you know, uh, large companies that have actually invested in thought about going into doing mining safety on them? I think it is. it is a common problem, but most mines have alternate escape routes and in this mine there were supposed to be alternate escape routes. So are the, there are these shafts that were, were carved uh, for ventilation and those shafts were supposed to have ladders in them but in the San Jose mine there were no ladders or sometimes there were but they broke and so they tried climbing through these. the first night they tried climbing through these shafts Mario in the front and at one point he grabbed onto this iron bar and it came out and it, you know, knocked out one of his teeth. And they, they reached actually the next level and it was blocked by the same stone. And then they tried to climb up another chimney, but it had no ladder. Uh, and so there was, no, there was no way to get out. So the safety procedures that should have made this safe, even if everything collapsed the way it did, were not there. And for that reason, the um, miners were hoping that there would be criminal charges against the owners, but they did, were not successful. Yes, Yes? is the mine now entirely closed, or is it somehow still up? No, it's still still closed, uh, and it probably will be forever. It's extremely dangerous. It's still collapsing on itself. Did you have a chance to go into it at all? I just did for, for the first, you know, I, I went with Luis Ursua, the, you know, shift supervisor who had been trapped down there, and several people working on the movie, because I was working with the movie people at the same time I was writing the book, because I was giving them my stuff for the for, for them to write the, the screenplay. And we went in. A little bit, and you know, and some of the people wanted to go deeper because uh, we started walking. It's a ramp; it's t- you know, you can walk down. And L- Luis was like, "No, we shouldn't do this," you know, <laughs> and uh, and so we came back. However, we were later given a chance to enter another mine uh, because the government of Chile was giving the movie people anything they wanted. And uh, I was with the movie people, and I was able to enter into another mine that was like this one. And we went not you know maybe a hundred meters underground, and they turned the lights off, which was really. You know, we, we, we were told to turn our lamps off to see what that was like to be in total darkness. And, uh, and I talk about that in the book a little bit about total darkness, because uh, it's very easy to get disoriented in total darkness. Also, there's myths that if you stay in darkness long enough, you'll lose your eyesight. You know, uh, There's all this sort of mining you know, uh, folk tales about stuff like that. And also, as I describe in the book, there is this, you can feel, when you turn off the lights and you stay still, you can feel these breezes moving. And in the mine, in the San Jose, and I think other mines, there is kind of an interior weather at different times of day, for reasons no one can explain entirely. The air shifts in different directions. And, um, and then, the most important thing that I saw, and which is a really big feature in the book, and it's totally surreal, um, is that inside this mine, there is this internal abyss. There's like a valley that's been hollowed out, right? Because they've been they've been taking out a hundred tons every day for a hundred years. Okay, so you, that means there's a big interior space. So this in Spanish is called el rajo, which means like the tear or the rip. But I describe it as the pit. They call it the pit. So it's the space and. It, You know, so in the mine that I went to, they said, look, you know, here, and I, I, I could shine my light, and I could see the light is swallowed by blackness. You can't see anything. And in the San Jose mine, in many mines... Um, there's this saying that if a, if a miner gets really depressed, one of the ways he can kill himself is to throw himself into the pit. So when the men were in the 16th and 17th days, one of them disappeared for a while. He actually went to sleep in his car. He didn't want to wake up ever again. He was exhausted. He fell asleep in his car. Nobody could find him, and they thought that he had thrown himself into the pit. In which case, he would never be found. And uh, and so. Me being able to see that in person, that was like, oh my God, you know, it was like, I never really understood what that meant, in rajo, you know, and and then later that same guy who they thought had killed himself, uh, he was okay, but they were trapped so long, they were going so crazy, he said, I'm going to try to find a way out so he goes up to the top, and even people are telling him, don't, don't just be patient, they're drilling for us, it's okay, you know, they found us already, we're going to get out of here, he's like, no, I want to, I, I know there's a way out, he crawls up, squeezes through these rocks, and he finds a whole new cavern that's been carved out by the rock that fell, and he, he, he drops a stone, and it falls, and being a miner, like you can, you can, you know through instinct, he listens to how long it takes for it to hit something, he knows that that space that he can't see is at least 10 stories tall and so so it was you know it's an extremely surreal thing and I spent you know three years talking to these guys and they didn't give me a lecture course on mining it was just the way the details built up one conversation to the next so yes yes were any of them not as forthcoming in the beginning or did any of them take time to warm up any of them There was one who didn't want to talk, who actually wanted to be paid uh, to beat talk. And it was not that he was greedy, it was that he had lots of problems. Um, but most of them were really, really forthcoming. In fact, they, the first thing they told me was, can I tell you everything? Because they had been told there was a pact, and uh, you're, you're the guy, right? I can tell you everything, right? And I said, of course, that's what I'm here for. So many of them were very, very forthcoming. But there was one guy who was the guy who led the raid on the food supplies, right? I could not, you know, we could not get him. He never showed up. And so finally, um... We reached the movie producers. Reached him, and I was gonna. You know, I was the main translator in these interviews with the with my for myself, and also uh, for some of the movie the movie screenwriter. So we find him in his home. Uh, we go, and there's a big crashed car in front of the house. And he said that he was having lots of economic difficulties. He had pawned his wedding ring uh, for a bunch to pay off some debts, and he he wanted to get his wedding ring back. So could we give him the money? To get back his wedding ring, or you know, his jewelry, his wife's jewelry, and so we were with this financier of the movie, who's a millionaire, I'm pretty sure, and he looked at this. He said, "Yeah, I'll pay." And he looks at he looks at the contract for the pawn of the you know jewelry. He says, "This is usury." you know this is look at this interest this is this is ridiculous you know because he's a financier and so we pay him and we sit and talk with him and it was one of the best interviews i've ever done in my life or one of the most deep interviews because he was so guilty and shattered and he was emotionally shattered and he said that he crashed the car because he was starting trying to start this business where he del- delivered you know vegetables it's you know small business he wanted to start with the money he had and he would fall asleep he would black out Sometimes he would drive to you know to go pick up the vegetables and he'd black out and when he woke up again he was on the road to the mine. And as I say in the in the in the story in the book, it's as is as if his subconscious in this really crazy literal way were taking him back to the mine. Right? So he was in a really bad state. But the first thing, but he was also extremely articulate. And he said that he was just, you know, he was trembling. It's like, I, what was the worst thing? I saw my friends dying in front of me. And so, um, he was the last person I talked to, but it was he was really a critical interview. And I found out this whole story of him. He was the person who led the raid on the food. And he had been almost a street urchin. His mother had abandoned him, he said, and he had spent much of his childhood from the time he was like 10 or 11 to when he was a teenager in a street kind of orphanage. Not really an orphanage, but you know, like a, a hostel for children, street children. And he told me, you know, when I was growing up, I saw that every Everything was for everybody else and so it made sense that he was the guy who went for the food because that's the way he learned to survive you know it's like you have to fight because everything is for everybody else you have to fight for what you want so he was the last interview and the most reluctant some of them became difficult to reach they would make excuses uh, the pastor for example I interviewed him twice in person but I needed to, I needed to know what he said in the prayers and he was kind of reluctant to tell me and then finally I tracked him on the phone and you know and and we talked on the phone for a couple of hours and he told me um, this beautiful line. He said, You know, the first thing I said was was you know, God, we are not the best men. No somos mejores hombres, but have pity on us. And Having to know, having known them after this, you know, years of talking to him, I know what he meant. You know, some of them, uh, some of them had kids from previous marriages they never saw. They felt really guilty about that. Some of them were really hard drinkers. Uh, Some of them had been fired from previous jobs. Um, You know, and so, uh, you know, there there was a lot to reveal, you know, so, um, yeah. So eventually I got everybody I needed and uh, it was a good experience, yes. Can you give some idea, like how big was this place, and how big was the place where they, they were in oh where they were they were trapped it was you know the, 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 the refuge the tunnel the ramp is basically big enough to fit a truck like a big uh, dump truck so it's I think it's five meters by five meters so five meters is 15 feet tall by 15 feet wide right and so uh, and, and so that's what that's what their area they lived in. and So this ramp went all the way down the refuge was basically the same thing except it was a room that carved out of stone and what made it a refuge was that they had put a steel mesh around the stone walls and there was a door that was made of of solid steel. So you'd go in there and this this wall would protect you from what was outside and that, I mean the steel door would protect you and that was about a size of, you know, I would, it was, I think I have the exact measurements but it was like about half the size, a third of the size of the books store here, you know, about that space, but they were, many of them were sleeping in there and he said, and since they were sweating so much, somebody told me that it just smelled extremely bad. He said, I've, one guy told me I've smelled corpses before and it smelled worse than that. And, um, and so, but they stayed in there because it made them sort of feel safe together. Yeah. To stay together. Yeah. But I don't know about the movie. What's the movie? The movie is going to probably come out next year. It's called the 33. Uh, And it is uh, going to star Antonio Banderas as Mario Sepúlveda. It's in post-production. I I know I can say that. Uh, The producers are very excited about it. I I worked with them uh, extensively, um, had a lot of fun doing that. Um, I think they filmed part of it in Copiapo in Chile, and they filmed part of it inside a salt mine in Colombia. Uh, and uh, and so it's uh, has a big cast, many uh, Latino actors, many Latin American actors, and also Juliette Binoche, who plays the sister of one of the miners. Uh, she yeah, she has a, a it's a it's it's an important role because there were the, the women who were on the surface really fought uh, for for the men below, and so there is that aspect of it. So she's in it. Yeah. Will they make any money on this? One would hope. They have made some money already, but the problem is, for example, everything is divided 33 ways. So if I give you 000, if I give you 1,000 dollars and it's divided 33 ways, it's actually 33 dollars. You know That's not much money. And so, um, and so I think that with the movie they got. Uh, I, should, I can't. I can't tell you, but I think that it, in, if the movie does well, they they, ha- they could do well. But they also did just get a pension from the Chilean government, a, a monthly pension of six hundred dollars, which is about half of what their salary would have been below. Many of them went back to work. Mo- most of them have gone back to work. Some in mining jobs. A few have. For one time or another, worked underground again. There's a scene at the end of the book where I describe a man who goes back underground, and it's sort of like that scene at the end of *The Hurt Locker*, where the guy has to go back down to sort of. Conf- he, that's that's who he is, you know. He faces death, and so the guy who told me this, Ariel Ticona, said, "You know, I felt pretty good after the third or fourth day. You know, it was like where I belonged." And. Um, but then he, later he had more emotional problems, and he's no longer working at all. He's on a medical leave. So um, yeah, they, they've you know they've gone back to work most of them. Yeah, but I I, I hope that I don't think it's going to make them rich. Uh, yeah. Long uh, this, this little last question. Okay, la- one last question. Which is um, yes. Yeah. Oh. Sorry. Oh no. Go ahead. Yes. Oh, so the- I assume from the reading, the book is written in present tense. Can you talk about the choice to do that? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I I wrote the book in present tense. A lot of reviewers have already sort of noted that and um, enjoyed that. Uh, I wrote it in the present tense because when I started to write this book, um, it was something that everybody in the world knew, you know, and I felt like. It was, it, there was a certain sense of immediacy about it. And I wanted people to think, and, and also because it's something that the men will never stop living. I think all of us who've been through a traumatic event, you know how that lingers with you, and you sort of have to really learn that it's never going to go away, that it has to be part of what you lived, you know, if you've had a death, that you have to eventually, you know, and so I felt it was justified in doing that. And I just sort of started writing it that way, and I never stopped. I tried at one point to go back to the past tense, uh, but it was very hard. And I I wrote the whole thing in the present tense. Yes. Do you want to ask the last question? Yes. I guess the question is after all this. Did the men, I guess, feel that life was richer? Did food taste better? Did did they love more? Did they appreciate their family? (laughs) Oh, that's definitely, that was definitely what many of them felt immediately. I mean, even just the air. One of the, you know, because as they were rising up, the temperature is starting to go down and the air is getting fresher and they get out into the. No, definitely. I think that um, there was this real sense of now I know what's important. You know, several of the men told me that. Um, Now I know what's important. It was mixed up with the fact they were being treated like heroes, which, was really kind of distracting and disorienting because they still sort of felt kind of small inside because they'd been battered by this mountain for so many days. They had been tortured for 69 days by the oral torment of the, of the mountain. So I think, no, without a doubt, I think almost everybody learned that family was the most important thing. And, uh, and like Odysseus at the end, you know, they, they feel this joy and that's how the book ends. The book ends at a home uh, with a family. Um, so with that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. I'll sign some books. Please buy some. Thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.